Both in his proclamations, I'll quote a letter he wrote to um, Colonel Spaulding asking him uh, to accept the Colonel's commission in the Jacobite army and, and saying these words, whether the king lands or not, our, uh, our aim is to march south, break the union and restore the dignity of Scotland. Hi, and welcome to And If Love Remains. I am your host, Mike Levitt. And today I am very excited to be speaking with Professor Murray Piddock. Um, uh, he's, this is a man that's uniquely qualified to, to share um, the, the subject that we're going to deal with today, which is the Jacobites of the 17th and 18th centuries. Um, Professor Piddock is, is currently pro-vice principal at the University of Glasgow. Among his 93 writings and 18-ish books are his latest book, Enlightenment uh, in a Smart City, Edinburgh's uh, Civic Development, 1660 through 1750, as well as uh, the book Culloden, uh, and uh, which will be uh, especially useful in our discussion today. Um, so welcome to the show, Murray. Thanks for being on. Great to join you, Mike, today. Wonderful. I want to start a little bit with, with your history with Jacobitism and, and why did you decide to devote much of your personal or professional work um, on this history? Right. Well, uh, I grew up um, from Aberdeen in the northeast of Scotland and uh, and uh, in a, that was a Jacobite heartland in the 18th century. I'm not claiming it was a Jacobite heartland in the late 20th or anything like it, <laughs> but it still was, uh, it still was uh, a very different place. And uh, as growing up with a powerful interest in history, I engaged with the culture there. And later on, I became aware of just how important the Jacobite cause had been to determining not only the kind of state that Great Britain became, but the kind of world uh, in which we live in, because ultimately it was a challenge to the kind of state we live in today in the UK, and also through that, a challenge to the kind of world that developed and maybe even including uh, North America, the North American world, and we might come to that. Yeah, for sure. It's interesting as, as I've done, you know, uh, as I mentioned to you before, I'm, I'm kind of a neophyte to, to this subject, but it's absolutely grasped me. Um, and, and I've found that a lot of scholars who talk about the Jacobites seem to, to frame the history as, as, you know, maybe England bringing civilization to Scotland or, um, you know, or, or something along those lines, um, where you seem to definitely take, understand the, the cause from the Jacobites perspective. Um, so are you just kind of a professional iconoclast or, or what's your, uh, um, how, what's your take on on how you know maybe may, many scholars look at that history? Well, I'm not an iconoclast. I would say what I would say is that um, well, I, I smelt from an early age the absence of evidence in a great deal of Jacobite history. A lot of it was quite uh, simple repetition of what people had written before, and often containing remarks about the Jacobites and about those who fought for them, 
which were prejudicial and discriminatory in a way which we wouldn't now, in non-historical time, uh, happily see applied to any group of pe- to any group of people. The idea, for example, that the Jacobites were supported by Highland savages um, continued to be published in respectable histories until the 1970s, even using terms like that. So uh, I was aware from a pretty early age both that the framing of the Jacobite episode was highly prejudicial and also that it didn't actually depend on any evidence. Um, and from the book that I'm working on now, the, um, the study of the British Army occupation of Scotland in the years after 1746, there's just one example. There's a huge amount of evidence. There, there's evidence from uh, court proceedings. There's evidence from uh, presbyteries and synod meetings of the Church, uh, Church of Scotland. There's evidence uh, for, of Chelsea, pensioner, Chelsea pensioners. There's ele- evidence of court martials. There's evidence of, uh, British, uh, of British Army postings. It's a huge amount of material. And currently, there isn't even a single article written on that anywhere. Wow. So it's the neglect of what is actually there in the archive is staggering. That is that is staggering, and and it is such. Um, maybe that's one of the, one of the the many reasons why I I find it so interesting because there isn't a whole lot there, um, other than stories and songs and poems and and kind of folk tales, um, if you will, and and um, uh, I, I think. Um, you know, there's so much um, romanticism about it that, that I think sometimes we we forget that, or or maybe I I don't think about how the real people that are involved there, and and to me it feels almost like a um, less about kingly succession than than about you know a populist uprising. But but before we get there, I, I, because we're kind of getting into the murky history a little bit, and and. I want to kind of plant ourselves in today um, because I'm here in Arizona. When I think of Scotland, I think of its own country. I think of, you know, it's got its own borders, its own parliament, and yet it's part of the, the, the you know, Great Britain. And, and I'm curious, I just don't know, how does, um, what, what's the relationship between England and Scotland currently today and, and, and how do they work together or don't work together maybe? Well, that's that's a very big, uh, a very big uh, question. So, um, the uh, in Scotland now for fourteen years, uh, the nationalists have been in power in the Scottish Parliament, and in the last general election across the United Kingdom, uh, the Scottish National Party won forty-eight of the fifty-nine seats in Scotland. So, all the other British parties together have 11 seats in the Westminster Parliament and the Scottish National Party is 48. Uh, okay. So the, this is a, a situation which is very unfamiliar, I think, in uh, the world of US politics, but it clearly indicates that Scotland and England today, although they remain part of a single state, are on very different traje- trajectories, very different directions. Right. And that was underlined by the European vote, a Brexit vote in 2016, where every single one of Scotland's 32 local authorities voted to remain in the EU. 
And of course, Scotland ended up leaving the EU because ultimately that was a statewide, a UK-wide vote. Hmm. Okay. What, uh, and, and why, um, and again, this is probably another kind of overbroad, big question, but, but um, take a step back into history now. And, and why does England um, feel like it has a claim on Scotland um, or, or that Scotland should be subordinate to England? Because that's the feeling that I get is, is, is that that's the relationship it should be. Well, this according ta- to this England, takes- I should say. <laughs> yes. This takes us right back to the Jacobite period. So one of the fundamental reasons why Jacobitism remained a military and political threat to the new British state for so long after the senior Stuart heir, James VII of Scotland and II of England, was deposed in early 1689 uh, is because... It represented a different kind of state, a different kind of politics altogether. So the late Stuarts, Charles II and James, they they ruled what is called a composite monarchy, a bit like um, Austria-Hungary or the Commonwealth of Poland-Lithuania or what used to be the United Kingdom of the Netherlands when Belgium was included in it. um, Not a familiar, very familiar kind of, of state nowadays, but a state where there's one monarch, but they're different countries. And so there were separate parliaments and separate administrations in Dublin and Edinburgh and in London. And when uh, James was deposed, and he was deposed by both the English and somewhat later the Scottish parliaments, they one of the things that occurred after that was there was an inc- a, a very, very marked attempt to centralize power in London. And the union between England and Scotland came in, which was between in 1707, united the two different states into a single state, the United Kingdoms of Great Britain. And that occurred because uh, the crown, Queen Anne, and politicians in Westminster uh, in London, were very keen to stop uh, the Scottish the, the uh, Scottish Parliament potentially inviting the Stuarts back, because the Act of Settlement in 1701, which was an English parliamentary act, it excluded Catholics, all Catholics from the throne for all time coming, including all the Stuart uh, the Stuart heirs, but the Scottish Parliament had refused to endorse the English Act of Settlement. And there was a fear that the Scottish Parliament would bring back the Stuarts. And to to avoid that, uh, the or one of the reasons for one of the ways of avoiding that was to was to create a union between England and Scotland, and that's what happened in 1707. Okay, so so so, and and I know um, often, especially uh, politics at that time, it, it, there is a you know a, a a large religious component to it. Um, how how did that um what what was the environment of of the people i mean what did they what did the people think yeah as the as the king was being deposed um you know what i guess you know through history kings are deposed and 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 royalty changes and and things of that nature and and but but this seems to be something different from the people's standpoint um what what was maybe different about about this particular one 
Well, the difference the difference was the, that it changed the nature of the state. So in Scotland, after the Union, uh, there were far more supporters of the Jacobites than there had been before because the Jacobites were committed to ending the Union. And the and in Ireland, uh, the the Jacobites received strong support throughout because James's Parliament in Dublin in 1689, after he'd been deposed in England and Scotland, he had a, of course he had a Parliament in Dublin, and his army fought for two years in Ireland. And the, of course, the battles of the Boyne and Ochram are famous to uh, to try and prevent. Uh, William of Orange taking Ireland over. But James's parliament in Dublin endorsed uh, a restitution of the lands they'd lost to many uh, Catholics who'd been Catholic noblemen who'd been dispossessed uh, by uh, particularly the Cromwellian regime in the middle of the 17th century. And so James James and the Stuarts always received significant support from Catholic Ireland. And both Scotland and Ireland sent soldiers abroad to join regiments in the French and other services. And the French, the Irish brigades and the Scottish regiments in the service of France were both uh, deployed by the French army and the French government and crown with a view to their being used to effect a Stuart restoration, uh, as, a, as, as it were, France's military contribution to a Stuart restoration. And they were so used, particularly in the rising of 1745. Okay, okay, and and uh, you, you talk. Um, I, I saw one of your um, one of your presentations, and and one of the things you, you talked about were um, you know some of the the symbolism that went around Jacobites, and and you know where where people would pass medals around. Um, and one yeah. thing that was especially interesting to me was that were these. Um, were these gloves? Before I get there, let me ask you this: Why? Why was that so important for people to have kind of these these different symbols? Um, again, uh, songs, um, things of that nature to um, you know to to show their support for Jacobitism. Well, I, I think one of the th- one of the interesting things about Jacobitism as a political movement and the the, the place it occupied in historical time was it was that the first age of mass production had just started. So milled coinage was introduced in uh, England and Scotland in 1662. Uh, so mass production of coinage rather than being, than being hammered. Uh, and uh, there was a mass production of glass became possible from the 1670s. And various techniques improved the ability to make ceramics and other pottery in the 1670s. And so... Uh, the, 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 this is the first stage of mass production, if you like. So when the Jacobites, when the Stuarts lose their throne, part of their propaganda effort is to distribute sometimes very large quantities of medals or prints uh, with their image on it and with a, a slogan or a political uh, or a political program on the other side um, of the medal to uh, to support their cause. So the medals were used uh, were used extensively as a kind of modern form of mass, uh, an ancient form, if you like, of mass media. One of the reasons that people medals were a bit dangerous. One of the reasons that people used songs was that uh, all the treason legislation 
passed by England and England and uh, treason English treason legislation was extended to Scotland after 1708. All the treason legislation passed by England, uh, which went back to the reign of Edward III in the 14th century, depended on speaking or writing. So that if you hummed a tune or if you wore tartan, uh, uh, although they changed the tartan bit after 1746, uh, then you couldn't be prosecuted because you weren't actually saying anything treasonable. Right. You weren't actually, you were just displaying it, but you weren't actually saying anything. So that was really important, the ability to to show and tell, but not to say anything that might end you in, uh, land you in prison or even worse with a death sentence. Right. Interesting. And and, and that kind of takes me to the Liberty Gloves. And, and, and the reason why that intrigues yeah. me is I, I try not to impose my 21st century you know, uh, <laughs> um, ideas and, and, and what has come to me over time onto the Jacobites. Obviously, it's a complete, I mean, thousands of miles away in a different century. Um, but what I'm curious, what did liberty mean to the Jacobites, um, especially in, you know, they're looking for a, a certain king? Was it, was it about self-governance or what, what did that mean to them? What it meant, what it meant, was to have uh, a Scottish Parliament re-established in Edinburgh, dealing with uh, Scottish affairs. Mm. To um, to have the not the Catholic, but the Episcopalian Church re-established in Scotland, re-established in Scotland, and to have a monarchy that listened to them, uh, and that. Uh, if not, you couldn't really call the Jameses Scottish anymore by that stage, but had their origins in Scotland and the sympathy right. with Scotland. So liberty was the, with the uh, and the liberty was also the ability to was the ability to have a degree of political self determination. Though it's not exactly like uh, modern nationalism. I don't know if your listeners are um, are. Uh, familiar with uh, Senator Trent Lott's Senate Motion 155, on the on uh, which gave rise to Tartan Week in 1998, based on the Declaration of Our Broth. But uh, the uh, liberty, which no one will, which no, no one loses except with life itself, which is a quotation from the Declaration of Our Broth, is just possibly uh, the source of the liberty, the ultimate source of the liberty gloves. Uh, which first appeared in Edinburgh in 1713. But liberty was usually embroidered in gold on the inside of the hand. So once again, these couldn't be seen, though they could be shown to sympathetic figures. And the colour white also symbolised Stuart sympathy. So the colour itself was beyond prosecution. These are, you know, these are very interesting uh, 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 times. But the other, the other thing I should say about liberty is that there was a real fear. Because after 1714, the uh, British crown came from the electorate of Hanover, that there was a real fear that um, Hanoverian and German interests would actually usurp Scottish ones. And mm. I think if I could make a reference there once again to American experience, the ability of the British crown to utilize the Hessians uh, in, in the War, American War of Independence came ultimately from the fact but the British, uh, the British crown still included Hanover at that point. Right, right. That that is interesting, and that's a that's a great connection. Um, and 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 so so we have um, King King James the the 
uh, was it King James the sixth that was deposed or King James the seventh? Seventh, seventh of Scotland, second of England, second of England. Okay. Mm-hmm. And yeah. And then, um, and then when, when he passed away, is that when, uh, when Bonnie Prince Charlie comes on the scene or, or was there another one in between? There was definitely another one in between. So his okay. son, who was <laughs> his son, James, the inverted commas, you know, the, the eighth and third, uh, as he would have been, uh, be, uh, succeeded his father in 1701. And it was, and it w- the James was deposed in 1689, mainly because his son had just been born. And although people were at that time in, in England kind of battening down the hatches and hoping that James would just die and things would come back to, to what they thought of as normal without a, a Catholic sovereign, uh, the, the birth of a Catholic son and heir uh, really made, uh, uh, really hesi- um, helped to precipitate James being deposed. So it was that son that succeeded to the claim in 1701. And his claim was recognized by a large number of the European powers. And how are the how are the English during this time, this kind of um, time of uh, um, uh, before 1715, um, how were the English treating the, uh, the Scottish there? What, what were their um, what would have what would have a, a, a person in, in um, you know, in Scotland, what would their gripes be concerning? Um, concerning England and, and what they were doing to them, maybe not necessarily on a, a ultra political level, but but on a day to day, what they were facing daily uh, from England. Well, probably not, probably not daily, because it's a kind, of, it's an early modern state, and so the union didn't really affect a lot of the way things in Scotland were run, especially in Scotland kept a lot of its own institutions under the terms of the union. Okay. Um, but but uh, what people would not uh, tended to resent particularly was tax. So taxes rose very markedly um, because Scotland had been a relatively low tax economy, and England was. I mean, for the they were all low tax by today's standards, but uh, England was a much higher tax economy, and there was meant to be a convergence in taxation, and so uh, particularly for excise duty charged on on uh, wines and spirits, something like half the uh, the wines and spirits sold in Scotland seemed to have been smuggled to avoid the duty. So it was a major. There was a lot of a major civil disobedience around ta- around avoiding tax, and tax was a big source of resentment. But people yeah. also resented the loss of the Parliament and uh, uh, and. Uh, the uh, the sense that Scotland no longer had a no longer had an independent voice. Well, I think I think that's a. I mean, even today, you know, it's interesting uh, um, here in in America. You know, we we often uh, talk about, or I, I'll say it for me. You know, I I feel like um, every four years, all we're doing is is voting in our uh, emperor king. You know, to see who yeah, has more power than anybody in history, to see you know who's going to rule. Uh, you know, me in Arizona from Washington, and and you know, obviously that there's a, there's a um, it's a bit of an exaggeration, but but it definitely feels that way. And I can see people thinking, wait a sec, you know, we're being told by these these Londoners, you know, what to do and and how much money they they deserve that we you know those type of things. I can see that being quite resentful. 
Yeah, it was it's it was an issue then as it is now, not in exactly the same way, but it, you can see the similarities. It's a re, a remote government starts asking you for a lot more money. <laughs> yes, exactly, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> for the privilege of them not attacking you. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so, so what happened, you know, that, that, cause I think the, the first major uprising was what in 1715 is, is that correct? That's, that's right. There was, there was an attempted, uh, uh, an attempted uprising. Well, there was an uprising in 1689 and, a, and an attempted one in 1708, but 1715, uh, is the first major rising. And, um, uh, at that stage, what was impressive was the sheer level of military support in Scotland, because it wasn't actually author. It wasn't actually supported by France, oh, uh, wow. because Louis the Louis the Fourteenth, who was very sympathetic to the Jacobites, just died, and the Regent Orléans, who wasn't nearly so sympathetic, uh, was in power in Paris. So uh, 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 James didn't even know it was going to it was going to kick off as soon as it did, and. Uh, it, it, so, it, but it raised round about twenty-two thousand men in Scotland, uh, which is virtually the seventy to seventy-five percent of the entire fencible. That's the entire number of troops that Scotland could probably raise at the time, and it represents one in six of the adult male population. And these people were not just joining up to serve in the army; they were volunteering. To uh, some of them were pressed, it's true, but many of them were volunteering to risk their lives uh, to restore the Stuarts. Uh, and the motivation for doing that was very clearly put in the commander in chief, um, uh, uh, Erskine, the Earl of Mar, John Erskine, the Earl of Mar. He the, a letter, both in his proclamations, I'll quote a letter he wrote to um, Colonel Spaulding asking him uh, to accept the colonel's commission in the Jacobite army and, and saying these words, whether the king lands or not, our, uh, our aim is to march south, break the union and restore the dignity of Scotland. So it's very clear that the motivation for the 1715 is indeed for subsequent Jacobite risings is very mixed. It's partly dynastic motivation but a very large part of it is uh, is what that dynasty represents, which is the restoration of the Scottish Parliament. And right, and that, and that and that completely kind of blows up my next question because you know I, I think you know some would say, well, you know, you're just going to um, you know uh, depose one king for another. But as you, as you mentioned before, and as you say here, it, it wasn't about that. It was about the separation of the union and and giving giving Scotland um, you know its its own independence. Or a certain amount of it. Yeah, well, I mean, it's 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 not exactly like a modern state, a modern, but it is a, but it's like um, it's it's uh, it's like a state, it's it's like many states in the early modern period where there were multiple, uh, where there were multiple states under one king. So it it, it made a, it was a significant political divide, and it was also. It, it also marked a huge difference between what Britain was rapidly becoming and what the kind of much looser confederation that the Jacobites wanted to see. And one of the, the arguments for federation that Witherspoon, who is, of course, one of your, your Scottish founding fathers, put forward right. uh, in the debates in the 1770s 
was that Scotland had not succeeded in having a federal or confederal system and had not retained its parliament. And it was very important that the states in the in the new United States had that voice for that reason. So then they, that, this political divide was really significant in the 18th century. Of course, it remains significant. But to people who think that Jacobitism was just about the dynasty, and of course, there are still people like that, one has to ask why it remains so important to so many people, so symbolically right. important. Uh, it has such it has such global resonance and echoes. When it comes to you know English history, the, in the Wars of the Roses, who was the the claimant from the House of Lancaster and who the House of York? If you even remember or care, I mean nobody does. Um, dynastic squabbles from long ago don't matter. Political ones sometimes still do, and this is a political struggle and not a dynastic one. No, oh, that's that's really well put. That's and and so what what happened to that first kind of major uprising in seven fifteen and 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 um, how did what went right? What went wrong? Well, not a lot went right because Mar was a politician and he got no military experience and he was uh, he was pretty incompetent on a number of in a number of ways. So he divided his army, which is not the most sensible thing to do. And um, one of the one of his uh, one part of the army went south to attack England, uh, and with some English Jacobite support, support from Northern English Catholics, uh, and they got as far as Preston, and were besieged and defeated there. Mar, with a smaller part, with 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 a large part of the army, but with the, uh, divide, his own divided part of the army. Um, had a drawn battle at the Battle of Sheriff Muir in 1715, where he failed to follow up his advantage and then started to lose impetus. He didn't quite know what to do next. And uh, really, um, over the next few months, the rising petered out and collapsed because there was no direction behind it, uh, no purpose, and no energy. So... Um, so it was very badly led, uh, but it was actually had about half as many troops again, in fact, slightly more than those who were engaged in the rising of 1745. Right. And, and what was, what was the, the, some of the fallout from that 1715 uprising? When, when things fell apart, um, what, uh, you know, what were maybe some of the consequences for, for, for both James and also the, the people of Scotland? Well, James had landed uh, later on in the Rising, and he was meant to be crowned at Schoon near Perth in early 1716, but uh, but in the end wasn't. He went back to the co- to to he went back to the continent. Um, uh, the British Crown was very keen to see James expelled, not only from France but also from everywhere except the Papal States. Because they wanted him, they wanted him having James in Rome was good for them in propaganda terms because it associated him very closely with the papacy. So uh, they succeeded in doing that by exerting diplomatic pressure on France and on other powers in the years after 1715. Basically, relatively few, there were some high profile executions. Yeah, uh, but relatively few of those who were involved in 1715 were punished, uh, okay. as as they were risking uh, to the extent that they were risking, because the um, 
Duke of Argyle, who commanded the British forces in Scotland, realized how fragile the Union was and really counseled uh, a, a, a very gentle way of dealing with it. Uh, so basically what happened was that was that uh, office holders, justices of the peace, magistrates, people who with any government office who had supported the Jacobites or were thought to be sympathetic to them were purged and people who were loyal were brought in. But most of the changes occurred like that. They didn't involve brutality. Okay. Okay, interesting, and 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 I ask this because um, I mean, obviously, there's where you know a lot of people or, or a lot of the history that I've seen um, skips like from 1715 right to 1745, and you know, a movement like that um, to last a generation basically um, is is you know, quite a movement, and I'm I'm curious, you know, what how that was kept alive. Um, and, and, you know, what, what was going on during that time in between those two kind of major um, uh, rebellions or, or, or skirmishes? Battles, more like. Well, there was another, uh, there was another rebellion um, uh, rising or rising attempted in 1719, okay. uh, which involved the use of Spanish troops. A few hundred Spanish troops actually landed in Scotland. But again, um, bad weather, uh, as was a frequent occurrence, bad weather uh, prevented uh, the reinforcement of the Jacobites and the British government got wind of the rising early on. Uh, there was an attempted plot, which was London-based, to have a coup d'etat in 1722-23. And then there was a plan for a rising in 1744 the Jacobite cause was was reinvigorated through the emergence of Charles Edward Stuart, the elder of James's two sons, who was um, charismatic, uh, determined, and highly able, um, and made a big impact even by the late 1730s. So people were aware of uh, him, and uh, this, people are aware of him absolutely, and they were and they gravitated towards him. <clears throat> there are a lot of issues of which perpetuated Jacobitism. Uh, one of them was that apart from Glasgow and the and the tobacco and West Indies trade and Chesapeake trade, uh, only Glasgow and the west of Scotland were benefiting from that. Uh, the east of Scotland, which had had uh, strong trade relationships with continental Europe, particularly France and the Netherlands, was having a really bad time. Um, there, was all, there were also some significant problems with climatic impact from bad winters. So there's a lot of discontent being fed by economic conditions. There's no doubt about that. Internationally, um, Jacobitism was very much to the fore in promoting the spread of Freemasonry. And Jacobite Freemasonry became a major international force in the first third of the 18th century because okay. it was one of the key ways in which, Jacobit, uh, in which Jacobites uh, created and sustained international networks so you uh, and also jacobite uh, prominent jacobite soldiers from scotland were in were were um achieving senior rank across the whole of europe in the in the armies of the day for example uh, james francis edward james francis edward keith was uh, a general in the russian army and governor of uh, and governor of finland 
and subsequently became the field marshal commanding the armies of Frederick the Great. So, uh, so there's a, there, there is a very strong elite diasporic culture of exiled Jacobites throughout Europe um, who are distributing a lot of uh, their networking through Freemasonic networks. And yeah. there's also a lot of disquiet and economic discontent at home in Scotland. And and I'm sure you know uh, countries like like France are are always looking for an opportunity to to you know uh, uh, tickle the British a little bit <laughs> and, and and you know get under their skin or, or find a reason to you know to to uh, get the um, you know get up on them I guess. Well. Uh, it was for most of the 18th century, from the 1740s even to the 1790s beyond the revolution, it was French policy to divide the British state into England, Scotland, and Ireland if it could uh, uh, for a large part of the time. For a large part of the time, because the 18th century was uh, above everything else, and that shaped the world we live in now. Uh, a, a life or death struggle between Great Britain and France to be the dominant power in the world. And France, not unreasonably, seeing the influence uh, and uh, significance that, uh, uh, that Scottish troops brought to bear, not only very early on, even in, this, even in the War of the Spanish Succession before 1713, and certainly by the time of the Seven Years' War after 1756, uh, then France particularly wanted Scotland taking it, taken out of the equation. Uh, and uh, they not unreasonably thought that if England, that if England uh, Scotland and Ireland were divided, France would win. Right. Absolutely. Yeah. So, okay. So onto the scene comes uh, uh, Charles Edward Stewart. Um, and, and, and again, this is me like imposing my American view on things, but in a, in a way, <laughs> He kind of reminds me a little bit of, um, and I'm not making a political statement here, um, but but he reminds me a little bit in a way of, of like a Donald Trump. And here's what I mean by that: he is like um, like everybody know everybody um, knows who Donald Trump is. Everybody knew you know his failings. Every, and yet I, and I have people, I have many many friends who will say something to the effect of, "Oh yeah, and I, I don't support Trump and everything." But man, he's he he's going to stick it to those guys in Washington, or they'll say, you know, uh, uh, Trump, he he uh, he understands us, and and obviously it's not in the same way, but but it seems to me like as a symbol, just like Donald Trump was the the symbol maybe for Red America, if you will, uh, uh, Charles Stewart seems to be like this symbol uh, that that people can rally around. Um, and, and I'm wondering if that's a, a good, if that's an analogous analogy. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's, I mean, I know that the, I think it's the, the, the Atlantic's just run a piece about the Jacob in the U S just run a piece about the Jacobites and Donald Trump, but I, it's, it's not <laughs> one I'm enormously, it's, I'm enormously drawn to myself. Um, right. <laughs> you know, one, one of the things I would say about, and this is maybe the most popular contemporary manifestation of Charles Edward Stewart's reputation is that uh, while appreciative of the enormous influence that the Outlander series with its more than 30 million sales has had on interest in Jacobitism and tourism in Scotland linked to Jacobite sites, it takes a traditionally dim view 
framed by generations of a certain sort of British history of Charles Edward Stuart's personality and character. However, um, Charles Edward Stuart actually um, does not deserve that. Uh, uh, um, He has many character flaws, but as I often say to people who point out that he, as he aged, he became bad-tempered and alcoholic, that if your your high point of your life occurs when you're 25, and after that all you get is unemployment and the brush off, it doesn't right. do much for your character. Very few people could actually deal with that, and he wasn't yeah. one of them. But but a, a, certainly as a young man, he had uh, he had uh, enormous uh, abilities and he had uh, and appeal to people. Uh, like all the Stuarts, he was rather slow in paying his debts and ra- and uh, generally speaking, viewed loans as gifts. I don't know where you'd want to take that analogy, but that, <laughs> but, uh, that was certainly something that he and Charles II, his, his grandfather, shared in common. <clears throat> that's, that's great uncle, I should say, shared in common. Right, right. <laughs> that's that's great. Um, what, um, he now, it, you know, it is pretty amazing. He's he's able to to um, you know gather from what I understand, quite a force. And then he runs into some terrible luck um, heading, heading to Scotland. And, and uh, um, it, I just, you know, is it, it seems as if it, it kind of um, is, is uh, aborted from the, from the beginning, this, this 1745 um, uh, campaign. Well, and it's, um, actually, it, the only the moment where it certainly must fail is when the Jacobite army, against Charles's will, the officers demand that they retreat from Derby. Oh, so, okay. Um, so, uh, is this first of all um, until Culloden, which of course is an enormous reverse, they don't lose a battle during the entire campaign, and that's not that uh, that's. Uh, no, it's not just Preston, Pans, and Falkirk, but it's also Clifton and Inverurie, and uh, uh, the uh, and Loch Lagan and one or two other uh, encounters. So the Jacobites look very, very well led and very difficult to defeat. And it's the moment after the uh, successful march into England at Derby when they, when not having gained enough English support and also not having received confirmation that the French are in fact going to land in the south of England. Um, the French were indeed planning to land, but the, one of the things that that was a real problem was that the army was marching much faster than intelligence or communications of the time could deal with. So, it, it, so nobody actually quite knew what was happening. Um, but the decision to retreat was critical but the point at which the Jacobite army retreated, there were approximately 1,700 men between them and London on Finchley Common. And uh, there, were two, there were two large, but indeed three, including, uh, uh, if you, depending how you count it, large British armies in the field. Uh, but they were all outside London. They couldn't have reached it in time. So the critical issue really is that had they marched on from Derby, they would have they would have reached London, 
Um, they, although again, the force was the 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 force was not the total force uh, that was finally raised for Jacobites. They would have outnumbered the forces facing them by by between three and four to one, and those those forces have mostly have been uh, unofficial or lightly raised militia rather than. Uh, battle-hardened men, so they would have taken. They would have moved, moved into London. Whether they have taken it effectively is a different matter, uh, and whether when they got hold of the the huge reserve, reserves of credit and cash uh, that the Great Britain commanded, whether they other whether the armies in the field who could now no longer be paid or or in some cases supplied would have been able to hold together long enough to dislodge them, it's a moot point. The, the chances are they would have lost. But by turning back, they made it certain they would lose. What 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 was the reason for the retreat? The retreat. The reason for the retreat was um, the uh, the commanders were just were unnerved by the fact they'd only acquired about a thousand English recruits uh, in the two hundred miles since they crossed the border. They didn't have confirmation that the French were going to land, and they couldn't really believe because they didn't know that actually that there wasn't a major military force between them and London, but there wasn't. Mm, wow. Wow. That's, that's the fog of war, I suppose. That's, yeah, that's, um, and so, and, and, and then we come on, come into um, Culloden and why was that such a, a really, really impactful and, and game changing battle? Well, you know, without going into huge detail of the battle, um, you know, Culloden uh, um, was a major Jacobite defeat, obviously the major Jacobite defeat. Um, uh, the thing that is unexpected about the battle, really, uh, is that people often perceive it as, um, as men with swords fighting men with guns, and the British Army's superiority uh, is shown as, as something where, uh, which everyone should accept. Uh, which rather begs the question why they'd lost or at least best drawn every previous encounter with the Jacobites. And the answer is, of course, the Jacobites were largely armed with muskets and the Jacobites uh, fired at least as many, some estimates are up to twice as many musket balls per head as the British army did on the day. And the, the critical issue was that they were both outnumbered and the British army had much more cavalry. And so in a sense, it was the enveloping movement of the cavalry uh, or which they didn't quite complete the envelopment, but the near enveloping movement to the cavalry was critical. So in a way, it's not a victory of British muskets over Jacobite broadswords, but a victory of British uh, broadswords over Jacobite muskets, because the cavalry, most cavalry, of course, in that era, mostly attacked with a sword. Right. So, so, um, so in a sense, Culloden's not what we think it was, but nonetheless, um, it's a, it's a huge. Jacobite defeat. Why is, it, why is it a world historic battle despite the fact it lasted less than an hour and there were only twelve to 14,000 men involved? Well, um, in the, the reason for that is because it symbolized, though people didn't see it at the time, the end of the Jacobite cause. So I'll take this twofold. What happened as a result of Culloden and what, and what Culloden put an end to? So first of all, what Culloden put an end to uh, the pros was the prospect of Jacobite victory. And let's just, uh, uh, this is a thought experiment, but this is what a Jacobite victory might well have done. So a Jacobite, if the Jacobites had won, uh, this, the 
the British crown would have been much more positive towards France. You would have had a situation much more like the kind of mutual acceptance of, uh, 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 indeed, of uh, almost a French superiority that Charles II had accepted by the Treaty of Dover in 1670. So the British crown would be much more pro-French. That means uh, that, uh, despite Parliament, it would be much more difficult to to um, borrow huge sums of money to fight France, and that probably wouldn't have happened. So the 1756-63 war uh, would probably not have happened. And if that hadn't happened, uh, then it's pretty likely because uh, the power, the, the presence of Catholic France to the north was something which uh, in Quebec uh, and French Canada was something which really, which really spooked uh, independent thinking Americans in the 13 colonies. It's right. quite possible the American War of Independence might not have happened because France would still have had this huge swathe of North America. And moreover, they wouldn't have been challenged by the British Empire. And, it, and of course, there, it was because they lost Canada that uh, that uh, Napoleon agreed the Louisiana Purchase in 1803 anyway. <laughs> right. So, uh, so in other words, North America, if North America remained heavily French, it would have been very difficult for the United States to emerge. And is- if... France had not spent so much money fighting the British Empire to a standstill because it had got very inferior fiscal military fiscal systems. It did couldn't raise as much money. It didn't have um, financial instruments that was effective in raising money. It didn't have advanced financial markets in the same way as Great Britain did. That was the difference. Uh, if they'd not impoverished themselves getting into the, that position, then they would have been able to deal much more effectively with the famines of the and agricultural bad harvest of the 1780s and probably had been able to avoid the French Revolution and therefore would also have been able to avoid the rise of Napoleon, which was direct Napoleon. consequence of the revolution. Right. So you're beginning to see that but if, the, if the Jacobites win, <laughs> the whole <laughs> world could be very different. That right is, away. wow. What co- yeah, so that's, that's the first part of it. The second part is, what happened as a result of Culloden? Well, what happened as a result of Culloden was that the uh, British army, first of all, carried out, uh, uh, particularly Cumberland was very pro carrying out atrocities. And there's a lot of evidence about that. He planned it for long before Culloden. Uh, not everyone went along with it. In fact, some British officers went to the Scots magazine to, to um, give them evidence about the atrocities. So this isn't a whole thing for the whole British army, but certainly Cumberland and some of his commanders were very keen on uh, on outright murder, starvation, mass deportations. So um, Cumberland initially sent a report in saying he hoped everything would be done in six weeks. Uh, ten years later, there were still oh, significant problems. Wow. And... And one of the reasons why that the the that there were it, it, the view was finally adopted that both Scotland would not be able to raise a militia during the Seven Years' War, 1756-63, but also Scottish troops would be raised, but be raised for service overseas, uh, was primarily to to uh, to ensure that everything settled down finally. So. Uh, large numbers of Scottish troops were raised, not solely, but partly by ex-Jacobites, 
um, who uh, and people were financially incentivized through big signing on fees, through the promise of land to join the British Army, primarily in North America and the Caribbean, though in some other theatres as well. And in the end, um, a Scottish officer who had previously been in the French service, uh, Captain MacDonald, who was actually now captain in the 78th Fraser's Highlanders, had joined the British Army, was able to give was able to give the password in good French, which he had, to the sentries uh, uh, on the uh, the heights of Quebec. Uh, in 1759, and allowed the decisive British victory uh, on the Plains of Abraham. Unbelievable. So, so the Scottish troops then became a major force in the British uh, in the British Army and its imperial success right through the 19th century. But mainly, that cultus came from those troops who were raised in order to stop Scotland being a nuisance after well, I, the ja- last Jacobite rising. And that, that that brings me to to another question, you know, kind of closer to to my home. There, there's a gentleman that that uh, um, that, and I know there's there's many Jacob, Jacobites that have that have that came to America for different reasons. Um, one in particular that that you know I'm fond of is a guy by the name of Hugh Mercer, and uh, yes, um, and it was interesting to me. Um, you know, he, his story is incredible, but the, but, but the fact I, I could not figure out why he would, um, fight in, in, for the British, <laughs> um, you know, in the, in the French Indian war, the, the war of, uh, 1756, mm-hmm. 63. Well, um, you know, why would somebody who was basically, who was no friend of the King. And I think he was not alone. I think there was many Jacobites that, that took on, um, that, that put on British, uh, you know, arms to to um, to fight the French. Um, is that because of this that they're talking about, or um, was there other reasons? Uh, there is so there's a there is a huge resentment uh, among Jacobites in Scotland who stay in Scotland or who go to British possessions um, abroad about France in 1745. Oh, so yeah. there's a widespread view that France has let, uh, has let Scotland down, has let the Jacobites down, and they didn't commit enough troops. I mean, if you were going to win, and it wasn't exactly the Fre- France's fault that nobody knew the French were going to land at Derby, but if you were, if you were, you were playing to win, if you were, uh, 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 as it were, and you didn't even know the French were going to land, and then they didn't land, and you didn't get the reinforcements you were expecting... You know, defeat creates all kinds of conspiracy theories anyway, but people did feel the French had let them down and therefore they were quite likely to oppose them even 20 or 30 years later. However, if they had escaped to the continent, they were quite likely to fight for France. Interesting. And so, uh, so um, there are Jacobites on both sides in the 1756, in 1756-63 uh, war. And um, uh, Chevalier Johnson, who is who is uh, Montcalm's aide de camp, was very worried about being captured by uh, by the British Army because there's still potentially a death sentence over him for his activities in 1745. Um, and in the end, he's captured by officers in one of the regiments that uh, had suffered worst in the Battle of Culloden. One of the British regiments suffered worst in the Battle of Culloden, but they um, they, uh, they 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 looked the other way. 
Um, so, so you do get Jacobites fighting on both sides, and it largely depends on whether they escape to the continent or not. That is interesting. And I have to say, I really appreciate from the presentations I heard you give your nuanced approach to Jacobitism in, in the sense of, um, you know, some a lot of times when we think of Jacobites, we, we think of, you know, uh, Highland warriors, you know, and when there was yeah. when the, there was so many, um, you know, different people involved in the movement um, that 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 were both both Scottish and English and and, you know, all all around that that that. Um, you know, for had different reasons for supporting Jacobitism. And and Irish, um, you know, when. Mm, yeah. Uh, so so when much, much later, uh, Roger Casement suggested to Padre Pierce the marching, a marching song for the Irish volunteers in 1913, he suggested Shellis Ock, uh, Young Charles, which was a direct reference to Charles Edward Stuart, and Pierce said we can't have that. Um, but interestingly enough, that kind of discourse about uh, uh, Jacob, the, the discourse of Jacobite Ireland is definitely alive in the 20th century Ireland of Irish republicanism. Okay, and that, by the way, and that, that kind of gets me to, uh, let me ask you this first. Um, um, I want to ask about some of the, we've talked about some of the, the repercussions, kind of big, but, but, as far as what actually happened, did did Jacobite influence? Um, I, this is a question I have. I don't really have a good answer to. Did it, it in any way influence the Scottish Enlightenment? Uh, yes, I mean the, the the Scottish Enlightenment cuts right across it because it's been quite fashionable to say, oh, "Well, the Enlightenment was opposed to the Jacobites," but it wasn't. There are plenty of Jacobites who are enlightened thinkers in Scotland. Uh, and there are plenty of non-Jacobites, but it cuts across both. One of the interesting things, though, you often get is that um, many uh, is, is that many of this group of people they downplay the political differences between them. So there's a great there's a great deal of friendship, uh, personal friendship across the political divide. It's just one of those things people don't mention, and that's partly because you know Scots who supported the Union. Uh, in the 18th century, quite often saw the Jacobites' point of view. They might not have got along with it, but they weren't often, uh, some of them were really hostile, implacably hostile, but that was actually really a minority. Quite a lot of them thought, well, they've got a point, but I don't think it's really practical. I'd rather not, you know, that's too, it's too violent, or I don't want a Catholic king, or, you know, so there's a lot of, uh, uh, there's a lot of fellow, fellow feeling. Um, and so to take, for example, what I think of as the three major Scottish economists of the 18th century, uh, who did a huge amount to create modern economics, we now understand it. John Law, who is the first, really the first developer of fiat currency, uh, and tried to uh, rather, he went rather too fast, I'm afraid, but he tried to to change the fiscal basis of the French state to make to make France great again, to coin a phrase. Uh, in the early 18th century, he was a Jacobite and he gave large donations to the Jacobites abroad. Okay. Um, James Stewart of Goodtrees, who created uh, principles of political economy, argued the case, was the first to argue the case for a metric system and also uh, created what is now thought of as the national champion's view 
of uh, European capitalism. That is, for example, France won't allow Renault to be taken over by right. by a foreign company. So that's the national champions thesis was a Jacobite. But of course, Adam Smith wasn't. So, um, but but on the other hand, Adam Smith borrowed from both James Stewart and John Law's thinking in writing The Wealth of Nations. Right. Yeah. He borrowed from a lot of people out here. <laughs> but, uh, oh, he certainly did borrow from a lot of people. But, but those, were, um, those were perhaps Scotland's and, and uh, two most innovative economic, th- economic thinkers that preceded him. And uh, uh, in a sense, he's writing against um, Stuart's uh, national champions thesis. But he's he doesn't acknowledge he doesn't acknowledge as often he doesn't acknowledge uh, mm-hmm. <laughs> with yeah. other people too Stuart, Stuart and Law's contributions. Okay, um, and, and another um, again, and, and I really appreciate. I know uh, I appreciate your time so much. There's um, these are kind of big questions and big subjects, and I and I am so grateful for your time. Um, I'm, I'm also curious the the one of the great again I think under. Um, looked at, especially in my country, um, travesties um, is the is the Highland clearances and the, the Scottish clearances yeah. um, of the of the nineteenth century. And I'm wondering um, how Jacobitism is is related to that. Well, it's not as it's it's not as direct as you might think, but. Uh, there are there are there are two major influences. The first is that um, the recruitment of large numbers of Scottish troops into the British Army in the post-Jacobite era uh, increased because they wanted to have land. They wanted to have small holdings. Increased the demand for land and may and meant that more and more small holdings were created. So that a lot of the of the land that these people had became unsustainably small as a as farm uh, you know you they couldn't farm it it wouldn't it wouldn't work and uh, uh so that influenced uh the not paying the rent and then of course when you're not paid the rent you're often cleared off the land right uh, and the second thing was that the uh, the only game in town for um a northern scottish landlord uh was was now not to um, not to accept any kind of man rent, any kind of military service in lieu of rent. He needed cash rents, and the cash rents were needed so that uh, life in the new Great Britain could be sustained. Because it's very embarrassing to have you know uh, twenty thousand, thirty thousand acres of land in the north of Scotland, and to turn up to London and to have you know less money than a second division squire. Um, right. So you want more money. And how are you going to get money? You're going to get money by turning the land over to new uses, sheep and deer, or by raising the rents. And of course, if you raise the rents on unsustainable small farms, many of which have been created in order to supply soldiers for the British army, um, then the economic system is not going to be able to take it. Interesting. Interesting. Um, Finally, and I'm going to kind of combine... And we and we've touched on this a little bit, but but uh, I want to combine one more question. What what the what does the Jacobite um, cause? How has that influenced our modern world? And and why like why does a guy like me in Arizona, 
you know, ooh, by the way, I, I haven't seen Outlander. So, so that's, that's not <laughs> my, my inspiration, but, but why does yeah. a guy like me or, or somebody who, who maybe is, is up for a lost cause? I don't know what the reason is, but what's your opinion on, on their influence in the modern world and why does it still resonate today with people? Um, it's a very big question, of course. I think, and I think fundamentally, I'd, I'd restate what I've implied before that it's because it's a political, it's a political question, and it's not well understood. Uh, so, it's in a sense, it's resonance and symbolism, and they're not just of a lost cause. And of course, it is a lost cause. I mean, it's all very much water under the bridge. But at the same time, it is. Also, there's something about it which is unresolved. The political status of Scotland is unresolved. Uh, Scotland's relationship to Europe is unresolved. The, uh, the Unionists of Northern Ireland still uh, cling to the date 1690, the defeat of the Jacobite army by uh, 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 William of Orange's forces at the Boyne as uh, an issue which defines their identity. Ireland is divided because of the Jacobite cause to this day. So uh, it is really uh, uh, about modern politics. And it has, a, a, and I think that although Outlander and many other things have helped bring the Jacobites who have always been popular to almost a fever pitch of interest uh, uh, in uh, Many parts of uh, the, particularly the uh, Anglophone world today, uh, one of the things that has definitely also done it is uh, is Brexit, because the Jacobites, or the Jacobite cause, was always about a close relationship with Europe. It's a European, it's a European movement. Uh, it's uh, it, it involves very close, particularly Scottish and Irish links and integration with Europe. And um, it, it, in a sense, those old ideas um, have got a new political playground. Well, it's not really a playground, but certainly a political yeah. environment to be in. So the idea of taking back control that the British government or the, uh, and, the, and the Leave campaign prioritized in 2016 is based on the fact that Parliament is completely, should be completely sovereign and not have to give in to a European law at any point. But the idea that Parliament is completely sovereign is a claim Parliament first made in the aftermath of deposing James II. And so right. it is, in fact, right. a historic, the historic claim on which the defeat of Jacobitism rests. And so you can wow. see that these yeah. issues simply haven't gone away. That's, that is absolutely fascinating. Um, if, if somebody is listening to this and they, they want to learn more about Jacobitism or, or Scottish history, what are some, what would you consider good resources for somebody to, to, to find and look up and, and um, where would they find some resources that they can learn about this stuff? Well, if we're talking, um, uh, if you're talking about books, then uh, some of the books that are really useful are uh, Daniel Setch's uh, The Jacobites. And that's his surname is S-Z-E-C-H-I, Daniel Secchi, the Jacobites. Uh, Daniel Secchi, 1715. So that's the best single book on the 1715 uh, rising. Um, 
my own Culloden and the myth of the Jacobite clans. And you can also catch up with me on YouTube by searching for me on YouTube. There's quite a bit. There's quite a bit there. Um, uh, Frank McClin's Charles Edward Stewart, which is still the best one volume biography published about 30 years ago and really gives you a sense of, of Charles Edward and his significance. Those are and also Eamon O'Kirda, uh, Ireland and the Jacobite Cause, which came out in 2002. So those are all, um, you know, places, uh, places to start. Uh, but there's there's a there's a range of really good material out there. And some of the I, I you know um, some of the new material coming out on the Jacobites in the Caribbean and the Jacobites and um, piracy uh, is extremely interesting as well. And there's well, that, I mean they're they're in other words they're huge areas which we haven't even which we haven't even touched on. But but um, I was going to say that's you that's know, piracy, you know, it's just, it's ultimately a Jacobite story. Yeah, I mean that, with, with the. With, with with the smuggling and everything go I mean there's there's a ton of things and then and then again we and I would love to have you on again because I would really like to also talk a, a little bit more about the um you know the the um the the America the, the Jacob Jacobite influence on America and, and things like that because I think there are there's a lot there that that we haven't covered I I again want to thank you tell me one more time when is your new book coming out and and uh, uh and the the with the the um the British in, in Scotland, a uh, British army in Scotland. I'm sorry. What was the title again? It's, it's the uh, provisionally the, the, the British army in Scotland, 1746 to, to 66. Okay. So uh, that's going to be, I have to say uh, the, the global history of Scotland from Yale will be out first. That will, okay. that book on the British army in Scotland will take some time because there's, as I said, there's a huge amount to, before this podcast starts, there's a huge amount of documentation and there's, nothing written on it and you know you also have to get it right because uh it's very it's still sensitive stuff but interestingly uh there's a there's a i've already got some really good stories uh out of that and uh, you know it's actually been quite interesting to share that with um some uh the national army museum and the the royal scots regiment in the uk and the it's interesting to interesting to to find out that but that's actually although it's controversial uh the audiences from the british army are very interested in hearing about it that's that's fabulous well i again thank you <laughs> thank you so much for your time i am incredibly grateful that you that you know you took the time to to talk to us and, and give us a a great primer on Jacobitism and and its 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 philosophy and history. So, uh, Professor Piddick, thank you so much. Well, thank you very much, uh, Mike, Mike Levitt, and uh, it's it's a real pleasure to have uh, had the chance to talk to you this afternoon. And if you could just send over just a little portion of your the Arizona weather, your Arizona weather you don't want to Scotland, that would be much appreciated. <laughs> well, I, I'll say I was I was up at five o'clock this morning getting ready for this podcast, and it was already ninety degrees. So, <laughs> yeah, well, I'll have I'll have some of that. Thank you very much. <laughs> send it over. <laughs> well. I, Again, have a marvelous day. Thank you very much. And, and uh, let's do this again sometime, please. Yeah, that, that, that would be great. But pleasure talking to you, Mike. Wonderful. Let's speak soon. You've been, you've been uh, listening to Professor Murray Pidduck. Um, my name is Mike Levitt, and you've been listening to And If Love Remains. Love Remains.